The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. On this episode, I'm going to be pulling an interview out of the archives. This interview is with singer, songwriter, guitarist, and recording artist Peter Mayer. Peter Mayer is someone I've interviewed three times now. This is the first interview with Peter Mayer. Peter Mayer had returned from Mexico, and he invited us to do this interview while also playing many of his songs. He plays some of his older songs and, at the time, some of his newer songs, because this interview was done when he had just released his album entitled Music Box. So there's some songs that he performs on the acoustic guitar, We did it right there in his hotel room. Peter Mayer is a very prolific recording artist, along with his band PM, and as a solo artist, he's released more than a dozen albums, I believe, as well as a few live albums. And I've always felt like this interview is the perfect introduction to those who are new to Peter Mayer. For those who are fans already, you're going to feel like you were right there, like we were, listening to Peter tell these stories play these songs. I think you all will enjoy this interview with Peter Mayer. He is an extraordinary talent. He has a lot of stories to tell, and a lot of you probably know him as being the lead guitarist with Jimmy Buffett for the last 30 plus years, but his own solo recordings are very much worth your attention. I hope you all enjoy this mini concert and interview. Let me know what you think. Special guest today is the one and only Peter Mayer. Welcome to the program, Peter. My pleasure to be here with you, Paul. All right. Well, you were telling us that you just got in from Mexico. Yes, we just flew in from Cancun. We had a a beach party to play last night uh, with Jimmy. And uh, another very unusual adventure along uh, what's been about 16, 17 years, I guess. this one, we flew down to Mexico and were uh, the surprise guests at uh, someone's birthday party. And um, we played on the beach on what turned out to be a big old pirate ship. That was the set. So we did did a set. We hopped back in the vans and then flew back uh, stateside this morning. All right. So I was going to talk a little bit about your album, Music Box. And one of the songs on there kind of has a... a, uh, a a flavor to it, I think. And that song is The Last Island. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us about that song. Well, it actually was, uh, I've had the fortune, the good fortune to co-write with some great, great people over the years. But my the relationship that goes back the furthest is probably with Roger Guth and Jim, my brother Jim. And Last Island was an, a lyric idea that Roger brought in I'm going to say it about 12 years ago now. And we had written a a whole song around this. And our idea was to give that to Jimmy uh, and hope that it might get on um, Banana Wind, an album like that, because we had co-wrote with him on on, uh, Barometer Soup and all. Well, we wrote the song. It didn't turn out to to come about. It it wasn't needed for the album or, or some reason like that. And I always loved that title. And so when I was putting songs together for Music Box... I uh, decided to take a listen to it again. And upon listening to it, I really liked it, but I thought, man, you know, there's, I love this lyric. There's got to be some other possibilities here, chord-wise, and maybe to, to Peter Marify it in a way, you know? <laughs> and so uh, I put it together again, and uh, with Roger's help, it came together and uh, turned into the, the last island that we know now. And it's pretty much a story uh, about all of our search for a special place of our own and you know we've all gone on vacations we've all been able to kick back for a week and had memories to boot for the rest of our lives and but then a lot of times you go back to your old you go back to the grind you know you go back home and it's it's kind of a letdown and 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 this this song kind of talks about that how we go to search for a place of our own and a lot of times when we get to a place of our own it's occupied already or we it doesn't seem to last and uh the song was kind of about the whole theme of the only place that lasts really is inside you. It's, it's finding a place, 
uh, of your own in your heart. You know, that's kind of the, the over, overall theme of this thing. And you can go to find the most beautiful villas on this and that deserted island. But at some point, if you don't have some kind of refuge inside, you, you know, you're always going to be running from some crowd. So. Well, let's hear it. <laughs> okay. Now, if you let me talk on, I'm going to talk forever. Oh, keep- so, so stop me if I go too far. So what we did was kind of, uh, put together kind of an island sound. And to, to do that, I put some paper in my guitar and it goes kind of like this. Mama, yeah, 
So they gathered up the driftwood and made it watertight. Drifted rudderless to the horizon. Well, I'm confused and I'm scared, he said, with no land in sight. But I've got you, dear, to keep my eyes on. We're on our way to the last island. Don't look back, don't think twice. I'm on our way to the last island. Something called my own and be Silent. Gonna find my piece of paradise. Oh, on my way to the last island. Something to call my own. So when exactly did PM first become a band? Well, when we first got together, we formed a jazz group called Left Lane. And there's a a very hard to find a record album of Left Lane's music called In Common that you can get sometimes if you look in the Swedish websites. And it was on the CSUN label, which is a Swedish label. And uh, But PM came about after... Our keyboard player back then, uh, Ray Kennedy, just a phenomenal keyboard player, uh, had indicated his desire to go to New York, and he said, I'm out of here. I'm going to search my fortunes in New York City. And, and so we kind of looked at each other going, you know, what's up? We got we to gotta get something going here. And um, Roger moved up to New York for a while, and upon coming back, he had songs like Moonlight Over Paris, um, and uh, Piece of Paradise, like I mentioned, another one called uh, Talking to Myself, and some just great songs. And that's when we really put put it together hardline, like, look, we got to do this group, and let's, uh, what should we call it? Well, Pete's lead singer, his initials are PM. PM means kind of nighttime mystery, and we had, you know, we all kind of had jazz backgrounds, which which gave us a, a uh, kind of a canvas and a, and a palette of mysterious sounding chords to use and, and we love that kind of stuff so i think all together it seemed to make sense let's call this pm so um that was really the start of it um uh, but what made it really sanctioned i guess that we put out a few of our, our own seat uh independent cd releases or back then it was cassette tapes i'm dating myself now but um the first one was just called pm and it uh it had songs in it like Up and down the avenue And oh, I'm really in a hurry Get in my car before it turns to blue You know, like real kind of off-the-cuff off, off the cuff, uh, pop stuff. And um, we put out a few of those, and then uh, when Roger, from back, coming back from New York, brought this song, we knew that we had something going here. It was, um, let's see, retune is necessary for this. Roger and I were writing letters back and forth to each other. This was before, for email and all that stuff was so widely accepted. And so he, I'd get a letter from him going, "Man, I really miss playing. We got to get something together." And I've written the song I'm really excited about. So when he came to St. Louis, he played it for us, and it was, you know, um, does the moonlight shine on Paris after the sun goes down? If the London Bridge is falling, will anybody hear a sound? If you follow the sunset, will it ever end? Does the moonlight shine on Paris? Mm-hmm. 
little beautiful little melody that Jim and I fell in love with. And we went to, um, we started taking little scrappy gigs around town, just playing cover music. And the bar owners would all be like, are you guys playing covers? I mean, are you playing your own original songs? And, um, we'd sneak in one or two of the ones we were writing and we'd be like, no man, that's a new song by Peter Gabriel. Haven't you heard that one? It's called Moonlight Over Paris. Or, you know, we'd just put it under someone else's, you know, like Midnight Oil is doing, um, you know, we'd pick another one of our songs and, and kind of just say, Hey, yeah, these are new, new songs. You got to check out their record, you know, but, uh, after a period of about a couple of years doing that, we secured a manager in St. Louis and, and then made the overtures to, uh, to Warner Brothers Records and then got, got that deal and the rest is, rest is history. And you had a hit, right? Piece of Paradise? Yeah. That was yeah. a hit song. Yeah. That, that was another Roger original. And with all, with most of these, Roger would come in with the seed idea and then we'd finish the lyrics. Um, but uh, the, the basic hook was, was his and that was a. And she never came back Walking down life's only track To the other side I thought that I had a soul It turned out to be just a hole in my life And I think that's really the one that that secured the record deal. We played that for one of the A and R guys at uh, Warner Brothers, and he, he flipped out. He was like, "Man, that's it! You know, I'm taking this in to Lenny Warnker at Warner Brothers, and and playing it for them." And which he did, and it's kind of funny how that story went because he played them the song, but it was in the middle. From what I understand, it was in the middle. No, this is what happened. He gave them the tape and left it on the table for them to listen to as a group. They would get together each week and decide which new bands would be signed and who was going on and off the label. And when he didn't hear anything, he was extremely frustrated and went up to the next meeting and slammed down the cassette and said, look, I'm just, I just want you to know what you're, what you're passing on. Cause he figured all of them had passed on the, on the deal and he played Moonlight Over Paris and they're like, why isn't this group been signed? You know, go right away and hear this group. We need you to get, get this guys, get these guys on our label. So Felix Chamberlain came out to St. Louis and, and, uh, we did a showcase for him. And, and, uh, a couple months later, we decided to sign with Warner Brothers. And about what time was it that PM became, uh, or the members of PM were kind of connected with, uh, with Jimmy Buffett? I guess that would be, uh, in 80, in 88 sometime, because I think we went, let me think this through. I think, it started to be a little foggy, but I think, uh, Piece of Paradise rose up the charts in 88 in, through fall. And toward the end of that year, we were touring, let's see, we were doing a, a few showcases, but we had, we had gotten a hint that there may be some troubles at the label that they were, were fighting about what single should be out next. And when spring came, um, things were a little, no, 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 it happened before then. Yeah, we, I'm, I'm trying to recollect all this stuff. So, um, I think in fall is when we, re, when we uh, toured with Chicago and, uh, Elliot Shiner had, um, had produced our record and he had been talking to, to Jimmy Buffett because Jimmy was looking for a producer for his next album. And, uh, he hired Elliot to do it and Elliot told Jimmy about us. And it just so happens, I believe at that time, the story goes that Jimmy was kind of looking for some new blood and looking to make a change out. He was going through a lot of changes in his life at that, about that time. You know, those, those tectonic shifts that we all have in our life at a certain point. And I think our lives shift and, and Jimmy's lives kind of shifted at the same point and we found ourselves in the same camp and and uh we went up to to new york and he asked us to come and record uh off to see the lizard and it was kind of weird because i can remember 
we were asked to do the record and we were kind of like, yeah, that's, that's cool, but we got to keep, you know, PM going strong and all this stuff. Well, we noticed that Roger was doing some songwriting with Jay and he would, we would work all day at songs for PM. And then at night he'd go over to Jay's and work on some of the songs for the Jimmy album. So it was wild. He would show up the next morning, you know, after getting about three hours of sleep, you know, just like, Roger, what are you doing? He said, man, I'm working on songs with Jay because, uh, Jimmy asked Jay to write songs with him for Off to See the Lizard. So it was a strange time, um, but very exciting as well because, uh, getting together with Jimmy and getting the chance to work with him and meet people that Jimmy was associated with really put us into a different stream. Uh, and it really, in many ways, it really enriched our lives from, from the camp that we'd come from. I mean, we had gone through eighties pop and rock and roll and, and had our deal and everything. And Jimmy was kind of in his own, kind of claimed his own space. You know, he had had a career going for already 20 plus years and kind of owned his own trout stream when we were floating down this massive river of pop and rock and roll. You know what I mean? So it was a really different scene and took us, took us a little bit to get, get used to that. Uh, and I still remember stepping out for the first gig with him, you know, in our, you know, tight jeans and leather boots and getting ready to rock and roll and look out and see all these people and shark fins and, you know, parrot costumes and, People going whack on. We're like, what is going on with this guy? I mean, this is like a, a Fellini casting call, you know, just like, just people were bent out of shape, you know, <laughs> so, but, uh, it's been a, it's been a venturous ride. Good time. And it's amazing that PM has just continued to come out with great stuff. Uh, the, the latest album, there's one song on there that really, uh, really touched me. And, uh, actually, when I first heard it, I thought about my partner, Jeff. And that song is called uh, It's Good to Have a Friend. Mm-hmm. I was going to see if you could tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I was working on the songs to Music Box, um, knowing that I really, really needed to get another CD done. And, and and not just needed to, but really wanted to put out something else. And this was after Romeo's Garage and Spare Tire Orchestra. And I think one of the Christmas CDs, Stars and Promises. But I was going through, for the first time in my life, I was starting to hit the bottom of the peanut butter jar in terms of song ideas. I mean, I was really starting to experience my very first dry period. Always before, there was tons of stuff laying around, and it just seemed to click. Like, go, go, Elizabeth Street, you know, a little too happy. All those songs, you know, they just came one after another. Um, but this time, I was really struggling, and I was in Charleston, South Carolina, and I had met a guy who who had a, a brain tumor. His name is David Bailey. I met him in Nashville with a very good friend of mine, Eric Hilgendorf, there. And uh, he had been through a total life tra- transformation. And Eric had just said, I want you to meet this guy, David Bailey. He's a really incredible dude. So we meet at Pancake Pantry, the place you hang out in Nashville. And he told me his story about how the doctor had given him about six months to live. And David just said, no, I don't believe you. I want... Just give me the most radical treatment, give me radiation, give me anything. And he went around, got some other opinions. And uh it worked. And he he licked this stuff and he's still alive today about six, seven years later. So um he quit his day job. He picked up his guitar and went back to singing and songwriting, which had been his original calling. And uh, it's it, just a beautiful story. And this guy spins out songs like one a day. I mean, he just makes me sick, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit more painstaking. I'm the cobbler in the shop late at night trying to, trying to get the two pieces of leather to fit just right. But, um, so here I am in South Carolina and I'm just pulling my hair out and I get a FedEx from him and it is, uh, a song, Good to Have a Friend. And I had sent him a tuning, a Joni Mitchell tuning. And uh, I'm going to have to do this to the guitar here in a second, but it's a really wacko Joni Mitchell tuning that she uh, she had used for years. And I sent it to him, saying, hey, check this out, see what you come up with. So he came up with this beautiful song, and uh, he borrowed a few of my lines, I borrowed a lot of his lines, and this is what came out. Some cord looking for a song. Still not sure I know where I belong. You're a tired word 
looking for a rhyme. Feel as though you're running out of time. And they say joy will be just around the bend. Hey, George, we made it that time. <laughs> that was beautiful. Thank oh, you. thank you. After the release of Red Wine and Lemonade came the release of Green Eyed Radio. Was it a conscious decision to approach Green Eyed Radio from a more acoustic standpoint, or was it a natural progression from the previous PM releases? Well, Green Eyed Radio was the first, um, I guess I called it, first solo album, but that's not really true, because uh, Roger played on it, Jim... And Roger both helped write it. Um, Jim produced it, so Jim and Roger's stamp was still all over it. But it was the first CD project that um, I kind of took the helm on. Uh, PM was always a democratic band and that we all made the de- decisions together. And it made things easier in some ways and made things harder in, some, in others. And uh, this was right after the period that PM decided to take kind of a hiatus from itself and its name 
And so I decided to go out as Peter Mayer and do, do the music I wanted to do, uh, and that I'd been writing for years. And that still involved Jim and Roger. Uh, and I think that association will always be there, but I was at the helm and I had to take the successes and then also take the failures. So, um, I think part of it's, uh, the reason that you mentioned the, the acoustic sound of it. I think part of the reason in the difference of sound was that we felt like this wasn't PM anymore and we wanted to make somewhat of a departure. And I was hearing music more that way. I was writing with Raj and many times we'd be sitting there with acoustic guitars instead of, uh, from the PM days where it was almost all, all electric. I mean, it was literally 90% electric and, um, once in a while you'd have an acoustic song. Um, and I think it was my progression too. You know, I have to say too that Jimmy, playing with Jimmy and Jimmy Buffett's band influenced that change because I was asked and required to play more acoustic with Jimmy. And, um, my good friend Scott Kirby, uh, was a great, is a great songwriter and also a great guitar player. And, and he was playing marvelous acoustic guitars. And I'm, I managed to, to secure one of those guitars through Scott. It's called a Loudon. And a lot of that, that album was played and written on that Loudon. It just, um, it brought out a different aspect of the music and, um, guitars are like that. Um, one, like I'm playing, I'm playing Jeff Pike's ovation. It's just going to bring out another sound. Or if you sit here and try to write a song now on this guitar, it's going to come out differently. Well, that's the way it was with Green Eyed Radio too. And, but I, I have to say, I, I look back kind of now coming, you know, it's, it's almost 10 years, I think, since we started that album. And I kind of, I kind of miss that time in a way because, um, life was a lot less complicated, it seemed. Maybe that's just a, that's just a, a misbelief we have or misconception we have after getting older since then or something. And we always think, oh, it was a lot easier back then. But the songs just seemed to be rushing out. You know, it's just like you couldn't stop them. You know, around every corner was a song. But if I, if I think about it, I also, my ki- my one child at that point, Brendan, was just an 18-month-old kid. And, and so there were not the same responsibilities as you get as your kids get in, older and get into their teenage years. But all those, all that sense of freedom, that sense of having more songs than you ever knew what to do with back then, all those came together in Green Eyed Radio. And, and I look back and it was a wonderful time. See what I mean? I'm going to just keep talking until you, <laughs> you tell me to stop. I just love that album so much. The Green Eyed Radio. It's it's one of my favorite PM albums. I love that album. Oh, I love so many songs on there. I love. I love all the tea in China. Mm. I love the prelude. To oh that. yeah, it's such a. Oh, uh, thank you. Then. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could play Green Eyed Radio. Sure, and I'll play the vocal version. Um, Raj and I had an idea for this song originally that Raj actually has much of a kind of a little mini novel written around this song. We had a, a whole story about. Um, a, a trash collector in Argentina who, and I think we got the idea from NPR at some point. They reported on this guy that was a trash collector and he became an opera singer, but he collected trash and, and a famous singer heard him from her window singing down below. And she said, this guy is an amazing talent. And uh, she went down to talk to him and took him under her wing. And he went on to have a marvelous career, which uh, of course ended in tragedy and all oh, Roger, Loves to go from a happy situation to tragedy <laughs> to some redeeming quality again, like all great novels do, I guess. And, uh, uh, we, we had the idea that this n- novella would accompany the album originally. And it just got to be a little bit too thick, so we pulled that idea. But, uh, so this song has some of those elements of the storyline in it. And, uh, but the instrumental was written first and the, the, the lyric second. Simple, simple man Make a living any way he can Working his hands all day Sing the song and keep the blues away Oh, lift it up, mm, sing it out Your lullaby I'm 
bring in the curtain down And when the show is over Well I'll sing to the stars Cause I know they will listen If you tell them Find one of your dreams Feet off the ground You can walk the moonbeams How much joy can you make But it's the happiest hearts that break So lifting up mm, Sing it out He don't even see the crowd Ask him where, oh ask him why Sing your lullaby Jeffrey guitar is going out of tune here, so <laughs> beautiful. Speaking from one MK to another, you uh, grew up in India, or spent a lot of time in India, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that was had to have been a huge influence on your music. Yeah, um, yeah. In in some uh, of the expected ways, you know, uh, Indian culture and. Um, hearing Indian music, uh, with its distinct sound, but also in unexpected ways in that the, India was under tremendous British influence, of course, for, I don't know, 50, 60, I don't know how many years, but British, the British ruled in India for many, many years, maybe a hundred years. I should know this history, but I do not know they got out in, in 1949, but a lot of Britain and the, the, the English ways were still in India when we arrived and, one of those aspects were the, the British imports, and, and along with that came the Beatles music. And so, uh, for, for Christmas presents, we would get a 45 RPM record player and, uh, the Beatles pop releases, and they just blew us all away. We'd put them on and started dancing around the living room, and we had never heard anything like that in our life. And, uh, the first song, first Beatles song, I, I didn't learn it, but I, I heard it was uh, Last night I said these words to my girl I know you've never even sighed, girl Come on, come on, come on, come on And I heard that song and I just went nuts. I was like, wow, this is, uh, like nothing I've ever heard before. And, uh, the other aspect of India was that we didn't have television. So, uh, it really made the days, I think, seem a lot longer and they weren't, they they weren't demarcated by Disney meets Andy of Mayberry meets Nickelodeon meets, you know what I mean? Um, there was more open dream time and, and we spent a lot of our times outside wandering uh the compound and the peanut fields and also playing music you know or 
dreaming of music, I guess, when we got our chance. So, um, yes, it influenced me very much. And I, I really can't claim Jim has really studied more of the Indian classical music than I have, but, uh, I, I really have a deep love for it. So there's a strong connection there. And you named your daughter India, right? Mm-hmm. You have a song. Yep. If we keep going like this, we're going to get through the whole PM catalog by 7.30. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I have a song called, <laughs> that's, I'll just tell this, everybody's heard this story, I'm sure, but, uh, we were in Key West and, uh, my wife and I have been married just a few years and, um, we had our little son and, and had named him Brendan and, and, Roger, Jim, and I were getting together every day to write songs, and Raj brought in a song called Indiana, and it went like this. Indiana. And we thought about, you know, ways to follow, you know, fields of corn and beautiful farmers' daughters, you know, and we, we just started going through what, what's in Indiana. Um, so we came up with steel mills, Gary, Indiana, farming, agrarian society, you know, all these things, and we were like, come on, man, we're just falling flat, you know. And so I, we went home and I talked to my wife about it. She's like, oh, this would be kind of cool if we made it about a kid and called it India because we had wanted to name our second child India if we had a, if we had a daughter. So I went back the next day and I thought, what do you, what do you think of this guys? And it was pretty amazing because we went over to the studio, Jimmy's studio that day. And within about two hours, we had all the lyrics written. I mean, it just came, flew out a little story about a kid uh, growing up and how as we all are kids inside and while we're kids and one day we'll not be kids, um, everybody, that's a very important part of everybody and a precious part you don't want to lose. But as parents, we have to say goodbye to our kids at some point. Goodbye in the sense that you let them fly free. You don't hold on to them too tightly. Out of all the songs you've written, Peter, is there any that you feel is, I mean, I know that you probably, they're like your children, you know, all of them. You love all of them, but is there any in particular that you just <clears throat> think, that's my baby? Yeah, um, yeah, a few of them. I really, uh, yeah, a few, a few were, went through more difficult labors. So when they come out, <laughs> you just can't help but feel a, a sense of just amazing, uh, Relief, thanks, and, and like a miracle has been given. You know, it's, I'm not trying to make it into too big a deal, but sometimes when you, you get, and all I, all of these ideas are gifts that have been given us. I really totally believe they're God-given gifts. And, um, if you've got a big head as a writer, you need to keep writing and need to keep experiencing because really that's where it all comes from. And, and we, we're gifted with these ideas and songs, but, uh, and then we get to hear the different personalities of songs come through people like Mac McAnally and Roger and Jim and Jimmy Buffett and all these people. And, but, uh, to claim them as your own, I think is a real mistake. But, uh, yeah, a few of them to me have been really, um, I feel very close to and I, I were relieved when they all came together because I wasn't sure how it was going to happen. And, um, and, and a few of them came real easy. Maybe I'll play a real short bit of two, one that came harder. And one that came easier. Um, this one was uh, a story. I was in Vince Farvel, our, our guitar player I worked with for years. Many of you know, know him. And Vince is a wonderful guitar player. And, and, uh, but I was in his apartment writing songs and, uh, I saw a, a book on the life of Michelangelo and I thought, man, that would be a great title. You know, just a story about, and a story started forming about a woman who was looking for love. And on the front of this book, you know, was the story of the David, um, this beautiful physique. You know, he's been at Nautilus every day for, you know, 300 years and he looks incredible. And, uh, I thought, man, that's perfect. She wants a, a, a perfect love, you know, that's shaped beautifully that can't talk back. I mean, that's what, that was, that's what always seems the easiest, you know? Um, and so it, it, it became the story of a, a woman in an art museum who goes after it all shuts down to, I mean, I don't want to sound kinky, but she basically has a love affair with the statue, you know. And I thought this is a perfect metaphor for love. Back then it was the 90s, you know, where everybody wants to meet that perfect person, you know. So uh, this is a little bit of this song. It's called Michelangelo. <laughs> 
She works in a shop at the Museum of Art. All the he's and she's of the centuries know her name. When the lights go down and no one's around, they whisper, "Hey, Julia, you're playing a dangerous game." Then goes and shingles that hang on the walls, try to tell her that man of stone don't care anything about you. But she steals to a lover under the cover of midnight. She says that's all right. I've got enough love for two. There she goes. She's kissing the Michelangelo. It would take a hand to break his heart. You're my beautiful work of art. You're my beautiful work of art. Banker man. Tries to win a love with his money. Factory boy bought her red roses in bloom. She said, "Give me a flower that won't fade away by morning." She said, "Give me a love that won't fade away by June." She goes. She's kissing Michelangelo. It would take a hammer to break his heart. You're my beautiful work of art. You're my beautiful work of art.
Wow. Well, we went and played the whole thing. Well, Peter, this program goes out all over the world. What would you like to say to the world? Well, that's a big, deep ocean of a question you got there, Paul. I would say from the top of my head and the bottom of my heart, give thanks for what you got and the people that you love and that love you. Serve others before you think about yourself. Uh, follow the golden rule, and we all have a whole lot less trouble in this life. And last of all, uh, make music, make dance, and have a whole lot of fun. I think if you do those things, keep your faith about you. Uh, it makes life very, very wonderful and rewarding and overwhelming as it is, but a wonderful place to be. Thank you so much, Peter. You're very welcome. Thank you. Zip, bip, bibbidi bop, boobity zing, dang, bong, chee, cuddly zing, a bang, doom, coochie, a tsukili, matsuko, oh, you should get gone, go, go, a doom, go, geezing, go to glen, dang, I'm bong, tight, it'll, as a good plant, and doom, da, ba, dee, ga, doom, goodbye.